according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews 4.12. I should have changed my call to worship and uh, imitated Colonel Theme using uh, Hebrews 4.12. I mean, how many times have you heard uh, the Word of God is live and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. I mean, if you've ever listened to a theme tape, or a hundred or a thousand of them, then you've, uh, you've heard that. But I'm a creature of habit, so I, I, even though I intended to switch it out this morning, I failed. <laughs> just get in the pulpit and you just go with Second Peter chapter 3. All right. Well, we are in Hebrews 4. We are approaching the uh, conclusion to the chapter. The, the, the therefore that hits in verse 14 uh, and really takes us through 14, 15, 16. There's a therefore in 14, a therefore in 16, but they, they combine together for the closing paragraph and the, the closing, the conclusion, not only the chapter, but really the conclusion of chapters 1 through 4. So chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 all get tied together with this uh, closing uh, section here in verses 14, 15, and 16. We're almost there. We still have to deal, though, with our accountability to the Word of God. And that's what verses 12 and 13 are all about, that the Word of God is ultimately the standard for our, our walk. And that's our standard now, and that's our standard at the judgment seat. And so we have to act, uh, study this verse and understand, is it talking about the written Word? Is it talking about the spoken Word? Is He talking about the eternal Word? Is it talking about Jesus Christ personally, who is the Word, and, uh, and or all of the above, with respect to the Logos to Theu? What do we understand with respect to Logos to Theu being our criteria for judgment? And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. Before we start, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you, Father, that uh, we have such freedoms. We can meet in a public building with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are, where we are, and what we're doing. And Father, I thank you that, uh, that we're here in the name of Jesus Christ. We are here to receive instruction. We're here in obedience to the Scriptures, presenting ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would lead us, that you would teach us, that you would show us how accountable we are, that we might be uh, all the more diligent. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so, really, as we look at, get the right slide up here, verse 12, it is the living and active Word of God. And this is where, when you read it in the Greek, it jumps out at you better than in the English in the English, it says, for the, I'm reading from the New American Standard translation, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper. And it seems like it has an introductory statement or a, a phrase, the Word of God is, and then it's got a trinity of descriptors here, living and active and sharper. The sharper gets expanded and other things follow that. But that's not the order in the Greek verse. The, the first word in the Greek verse is living, living. And so uh, we want to have the order, living comes first. It is set apart. It's set apart in word order, and it's set apart in context. It's set apart in significance. 
It is the living word. If it wasn't the living word, it wouldn't be active or sharp. All right. The fact that it's the living word is uh, the, the, emph- the point of emphasis here in this, uh, in this verse. Living comes first, set apart from active and sharper. And we looked at that last week, put it up there for you to read. Zone is the first word. That's the participle from zao to live. Zone gar halagos tutheu, kai, and energes kai tamudaras. So living is the word and uh, active and sharper. All right. And it wouldn't be active and sharper if it wasn't living. That's the point. Both active and sharper. And when you have the kai kai like that, it's often common to render a phrase like that with a both and, the both and formula. So because it has kai kai, kai energes, kai tamodoros, it's, uh, it would be common to say both active and sharp. So the living word is both active and sharp. And that's uh, the, the word order that this passage emphasizes. And uh, just as chapter 3, there was a warning in chapter 3 that referenced the living God, remember that? That uh, take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls short of the living God. That was a pretty severe warning, I, I thought. I hope you, you, you also felt that way, that uh, we're all susceptible to negative volition, to hardness of heart, that we can walk away from the Word of God tomorrow. I pray that we don't, but we have the, the sinful human capacity to do that. So take care, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So the warning in chapter 3 was the living God. The warning in chapter 4 is the living Word. It's the same warning, all right? Because the living God is the origin of the living Word. He's the author of the living Word. And uh, if we're going to get Trinitarian about it, we might think of, uh, of, a, of a father-son dynamic between chapter 3 and chapter 4 because we are going to discuss the nature of Halagos being Jesus Christ Himself, God the Son, our Savior. So just as chapter 3 referenced the living God, chapter 4 references the living Word. And we're going to have a living emphasis throughout the entire book in chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 12. All have a living emphasis throughout. And that's, that's going to be important to go through. I think it's, uh, it is the theological expansion of, of Romans 12.1 that uh, we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. And uh, there's only one verse there in Romans 12 that talks about the living and holy sacrifice. But the author of Hebrews expands upon that through all these chapters. Ours is a living priesthood. We have a living high priest. We don't have a great high priest that keeps dying and has to get replaced by his son and then his grandson and his great-grandson. All those priests kept dying but we have a living high priest who lives forever to make intercession for the saints. And uh, we have a thrill as we focus on that. All right, we get to this next phrase then. So we, we emphasize the living, zone gar halagos. Then we have to ask ourselves, okay, what is this logos? Is this the Word of God or Word of God? Uh, when we're talking about the Word of God, are we talking about the Bible or are we talking about Jesus? All right, the hagos tutheu could reference either God the Son, that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, or it could reference the written word and even the spoken word of God. And uh, we have references throughout Old Testament and New Testament accordingly, or well, for the written word and spoken word, we have Old and New Testaments. Uh, For Jesus as the word, we start with John 1.1, and we have the the recognition there. So when I look at at Hebrews 4.12, I say, all right, Jesus Christ is alive and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Can I read it that way? Can it be understood that way? Is he alive? Is he active? Can he penetrate? All right. 
Is he able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart? Can Jesus do that? Jesus can do that. Then I go back and I read the verse a second time through and now I'm thinking Bible. Is the Bible alive? Yes, it is. Is it active? Yes, it is. Does it pierce? Oh, let me tell you. Okay. I had to preach, do all things without grumbling or disputing last hour. And that's, uh, I want to grumble about that. That was not an easy one to preach. And is it able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart? Yes, it is. Okay. So you can really read this verse twice and understand it correctly both ways. Now, of course, we're familiar with God the Son being the Word, hopefully. John 1.1 and 1.14, well-known introduction to the fourth gospel. Let me get there. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Not only is this a parallel, but grammatically it's, it's, it's very parallel. It uses the same construction where you put the, the complement out front and then you have the, the, uh, the subject with the definite article. It is, uh, it is uh, almost precisely the same as we have it in, in uh, Hebrews 4.12. And so the Word was God, just as we have uh, alive is the Word. Same, uh, same structure. And then, of course, he was in eternity past, worshiping, loving, in fellowship with the Father, the Father and Son in fellowship with each other. But then, in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When God the Son became, uh, received His human body in a Bethlehem manger, was birthed into this world, and uh, the Word became flesh. And so we get that. It wasn't God the Father, it wasn't God the Holy Spirit that was born in the Bethlehem stall, right? It was Jesus Christ. It was God the Son as the Word became flesh. How about 1 Peter 1.23? These other ones maybe aren't as well known. 1 Peter 1.23. And this one, boy, this one gets a lot of commentary, almost as much as Hebrews 4.12 does. Verse 22 says, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. Is that talking about the Bible or is that talking about Jesus Christ? And it's speaking as the agent for which we were born again, born through the living and enduring Word of God. And by the way, it's the same living, it's the same zone, then you get a different term for enduring Word of God. So maybe when we solve the mystery of, uh, of Hebrews 4.12, we can solve the mystery of 1 Peter 1.23. Are we talking about the Bible or are we talking about Jesus? Well, on my slide you see where I already put it. I put it up there for the, the Jesus side of things. Okay, 1 Peter 1.23. How about 1 John 1 verses 1 and 2? In his first epistle, he begins it in a similar fashion to how he begins his gospel. Same author, same apostle John, the beloved disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote the fourth gospel. He wrote these three epistles. And in 1 John 1, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It's the same logos. It just has the of life attached to the end of it. 
concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so it's the, it's the prologue to the gospel, rewritten and, and repurposed for the prologue to the epistle, and uh, introduces the, uh, the same Savior that uh, the gospel introduces, calls Him the Word, the Word of life. Finally, Revelation 19, 13, when He comes to conquer, and He has a name. He has several names. <clears throat> Romans 19, 11, or I'm sorry, Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems. See, he's not going to have a second virgin birth, <laughs> right? Well, you tell the Christmas story, when Jesus was born, he came very humbly. He came as a babe in the manger, he was wrapped in swaddling. Well, that's not second advent, okay? Second advent He's a full-grown adult male. He's the God-man. He is not laying aside his privileges. He has full access to every attribute of deity. He uses those attributes. He comes back to conquer. He is uh, clothed. He has a name. So in verse 11, he's called faithful and true. Verse 12, he has a private name between him and the Father, a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called Halagos Tutheu, the Word of God. It's the same Halagos Tutheu that we have in Hebrews 4.12. So, um, plenty of evidence there that would suggest that perhaps the author of Hebrews had Jesus Christ in mind. Or perhaps the author of Hebrews is considering just the spoken word, the, the written word, the the revelation that comes from God Himself, such as Isaiah 55, 11. Talking about the rain, and as the rain and the snow, I think we're familiar with this, right? In uh, Isaiah 55, 8, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, I included that verse down below as it refers to the written and the spoken word. I put that passage in the second half of, of this slide instead of the first half of the slide. But let me ask you something. Might we also view Isaiah 55 as a reference to Jesus Christ? Is he not my word which goes forth from my mouth? And will he accomplish everything for which the Father sends him? Amen. <laughs> and he said so in John 17. He said, Father, I have done the work that you have given me to do. And we have a, a declaration of victory there in that, in that aspect. So I would, um, I think there's a collection of verses that we have to embrace as being remarkably um, double meaning. And in other words, you can take them both ways. They're not, am, am, I guess, ambivalent, ambiguous. They're uh, ambidextrous. They're, uh, they're ambi-something, right? But we can read them two different ways with reference to Jesus personally 
and the Word of God in general. And I think it's uh, useful to do that with uh, Hebrews 4.12, 1 Peter 1.23, and Isaiah 55.11. So the Word of God does not return void, which by the way is why it's so powerful, why we want to instill it in our children. We want to ground our children in the Bible from the youngest of ages, give them their Bible verses, give them their memory verses, you know, make, uh, make their next meal conditional upon reciting a Bible verse or something. And, because man shall not live by bread alone. And, and when, you, when they're storing the Bible verses in their heart, that's a marvelous thing because there's going to be a day that they grow up and they leave home and you can't follow them everywhere. But that you've already put the Word of God in their soul. How cool is that? And uh, that's the best stalker on earth is the doctrine and residency. The Word of God that's, that's uh, filling the soul. And I love it. It won't return void. It is effective. It is alive and powerful. Colossians 3.16. Colossians 3.16. And it's not hard to find verses that talk about the Word being the Word. All right? Being the Word of God. But it is interesting when you see the Word of God as an agent doing things. And then he gives you pause and you stop and think, well, wait a minute. And so we're told uh, in verse 15 to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. And let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it dwell within you, richly. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So if you're going to receive the Word implanted, that means you're putting something else external to you inside of you right? Receive the Word implanted. So you internalize the Word of God. And we're told to let it dwell richly. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that's a, that's a fun thing. I, that's why I use pregnancy as my, as my illustration for this. It's like there's a living being inside of you and, it, and it, it's, it's, it's living. And it, and it kicks, right? And it keeps you up at night. That's what the Word of God does. It kicks and it keeps you up at night and it steps on your bladder and it won't let you sleep and it, it gets very uncomfortable. The Word of God does that if you let it richly dwell within you. Internalize the Word of God, appropriate it on that internal basis where you're laying claim to it. How about 1 Thessalonians 2.13? It was a thanksgiving that Paul had. He said, for this reason also, and by the way, this, this is, I think it's a nice connection with Hebrews 4, because he talks about, in verse 12, walking in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Well, how are you going to do that without doctrine, without the word of God? How will you ever walk in a manner worthy if you're not doing so according to the standard of the word of God? It's the word of God that's alive and powerful. It's the word of God that sets the standard, all right? It's not uh, a Bible-thumping preacher. It's not uh, you know, old and out-of-touch parents. It's not some fuddy-duddy with a biblical opinion. It's the Bible. The Bible is the standard. And so we, we adjust our lives to the Bible, or we don't, and we either reap the blessings or we face the consequences. And so when it says you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory, that's, uh, that's marvelous. And then it says, for this reason also... We constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, 
So you're not in Bible class to hear what Pastor Bob has to say. You're not here for the, the, the Pastor Bob nuggets or wisdom or whatever. Check it out. Does it come from Scripture? Agree with it. It's the Word of God. Not as the Word of man. And also for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. It also performs its work in you who believe. So, wow. It's productive. It does something. When you take it in, you let it dwell richly, what's it going to do while it's in there dwelling richly? What it's designed to do. It won't return void. It will accomplish the purpose for which God sent it. It's going to accomplish everything. That means it's going to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The Word of God is going to build you up and give you strength. The Word of God is going to renew you in your mind. It's going to do a lot of things. It performs its work in you who believe. In you who believe. Notice. It doesn't say you who are saved. It says you who presently, continuously, today keep on walking by faith. This is a phase two experiential application of belief. So there's the power of the uh, of the word. How about James one twenty one? I've cited it already several times. You might as well look at it. We don't want to be hearers only. We want to be hearers and doers. But in order to be a hearer, we have to do a couple of things. We have to cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness. We have to be in fellowship. We can't be carnal. If you're out of fellowship this morning, you can't take in the Word of God. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the Word implanted. So maybe, maybe you're not carnal. You are in fellowship, but you still have to go through a humility check. You still have to start every Bible class with saying, Father, I don't know everything. I'm going to learn something today. Teach me what I need. Open my eyes to see what I need. And plant it. Plant it deep. Plant it as deep as it needs to go. As it says here, receive the word implanted. So how deep does it have to go to become implanted? If it's barely just kind of stuck in there, is that implanted? If you get just like a little sliver, a little splinter or whatever, and it's just barely stuck in there, and you go, oh, that's irritating, and you pluck it out and it's gone. That's not implanted. <laughs> okay? That's just a little surface, skin-level irritant. The Word of God is designed to go much deeper. Hebrews 4.12 says it goes as deep as it needs to go to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Okay? So with humility, receive the word implanted, which is able, able, notice, to save your souls. That doesn't mean that, you know, you come to a Billy Graham type evangelism conversion. We're talking about saving your souls today, all day, every day, every time a sin temptation comes, that living and abiding word of God is in your soul that says, nope, that's not right. Nope, that's not right. Here's a temptation. You say, nope, that's not right. Just like Jesus, he's faced with a temptation. You got a scripture. Because the Word of God is able to save you. It is able to save your souls. Again, it's those who believe. Prove yourself doers of the Word, not merely hearers only who delude themselves. How sad is that? To sit, to, to fill notebooks, to get doctrine after doctrine after doctrine, to know a whole lot of stuff and then never use it. <laughs> How sad. It's able to save you, but you're not using it. It's able, it dwells richly within you, it's able to work if you let it. It does its work in those who believe. Remember why the gospel didn't profit the Exodus generation? They heard it. They heard good news. It was not united by faith in the ones who heard. 
And so it won't profit, it won't, it, it's, it won't save, it won't work. Doctrine does nothing if you're carnal and not walking by faith and using it. So we have the rhetorical question, is the Word of God Jesus or is the Word of God the Bible or both? I think you can read it both ways. I prefer to take it both ways. Um, is, was there a primary way that the author himself had in mind when he put this on paper? When he put quill to parchment and, uh, and was inspired by the Holy Spirit, did the author have something in mind? Did the, was the author intentionally referring to the written and spoken word or was the author intentionally speaking of Jesus Christ as the word? What was his main emphasis when he was putting this on paper? Any ideas? <laughs> I don't know. No, I, my suspicion though, I think he was talking about the written and spoken word. I think only uh, the understanding only of Jesus um, came later, perhaps. For example, when you look at that list, um, the Gospel of John, the, the Epistles of John, First Peter, Revelation, obviously, they were all written after Hebrews. They were all written after Hebrews. So if Hebrews 4.12 is in fact a reference to Jesus Christ as the Word, it's the first ever in the New Testament reference to Jesus Christ as the Word. And it may be. It may be the first ever. And it may be that John was blessed by reading it in Hebrews and then put it into 1 John and put it into John and put it into Revelation. And Peter was blessed by it, put it into 1 Peter. Um, but I suspect not. That's just my idea. We'll find out when we get there. Like we're also going to find out whether it was Barnabas or Luke or Paul or who, or, you know, who the author might have been. Um, we can't know that for a fact either. All right. Active and effective. Let's talk about active and effective. These are the two adjectives. Of course, living is a given. That's what allows these other things to be true. Active, effective. Now this amplifies the prime adjective of living. This amplifies the prime adjective. It's prime because it's pushed up front. It's the first adjective. It's the participle, really. Living is the word. And active and sharp. Now let's understand that I kind of joked about it last week. It's, it's no joking matter this morning, all right? So don't laugh at me now. Laugh at yourself, okay? Or laugh at somebody else you might happen to know. Um, let's, let's face it, though. The longer we live, the less active we become. And the less sharp <laughs> we become. All right? Now you're laughing again, but that's all right. The Word of God is living, eternally living, but not aging, not growing old, not growing obsolete, not ready to disappear. The Word of God is living and active and sharp. We understand, of course, because of mortality and corruption, the aging process causes living things to grow inactive and dull over time. Not so for the living Word. The living Word remains as sharp as ever, as sharp today as it ever was when it was first spoken. And you don't, I mean, it's not just human beings. We, can, we, have, we have dogs that are getting old and, 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 you know, it's hard to watch, or cats or other animals, plants that are getting old, you know, these living things that, uh, that don't age well. <laughs> or even if they age well, they still age. And even as, as if you age the best of all possible aging, it's still the activity will diminish. The sharpness, the, the dullness happens, okay? But not so for the living word. It remains sharp as ever. Psalm 119, verse 89. 
You know, when I read Psalm 119, I've taught it, my son has taught it. It's, uh, it's such a beautiful psalm. Many people have memorized it. The, the psalmist here, I don't think it was David, but whoever the psalmist was, has such a love affair with doctrine, has such a love affair with the Word of God. You just see it in, in strophe after strophe after strophe through the whole the eight-verse uh, segments of this chapter. But uh, Psalm 119, verse 89, you see how active it is, how living it is. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Forever. So when does that expire? (laughs) When does it get outdated? When does it get updated? When does it get replaced? When is it uh, so old-fashioned we don't ignore it? I mean, we don't pay attention to it anymore. We just look at it and say, oh, that's cute. That's an old-fashioned kind of thing, okay? It's heartbreaking to me watching what our culture is doing, what our generation is doing, viewing the timeless and eternal Word of God as if it's passing and and needs to be updated, okay? No, give me old-fashioned anytime. (laughs) The old-fashioned gospel, the old-fashioned Word, old-fashioned grace, uh, all that. And so uh, forever, O Lord, is your word established and fixed on high. Your faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You establish the earth and it stands. And so you go through this and you see that the word of God is the word of God for my parents' generation, the word of God for my generation, the word of God for my children's generation is going to be faithful for them as it was faithful for me. It's never going to, it's never going to fall short. And uh, when the critics attack it and mock it, some very spectacularly, some very famously, Voltaire said they'd be gone. And that just amuses me. If you're familiar with that, he said, a hundred years after my death, there will be no more Bibles in the world. That was Voltaire's boast. And God is so hilarious because the building in which he died became a, a, a Bible bookstore, a Bible publishing house. A <laughs> hundred years after his death. In any event... How about Isaiah 40? The grass withers, the flower, the flower fades. This is Pastor Cliff's call to worship. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. When does the Bible expire? When does it get outdated? When does it get updated? Never. You know, the critics say, well, your Bible's not a science textbook. Thank God. I stole that from Ken Ham. He said, thank God it's not a science textbook. Your science textbooks are changing every three or four years. You know, the science textbooks kids got today are totally different from what we had in our generation. They're going to be different again in the next generation. You're always, always, always changing and updating your science textbooks. We got got the living and abiding Word of God, and it stands forever. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, not one jot, not one tittle. Well, we pay attention to manuscripts. That's why we pay attention to punctuation, spelling. Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You ever study Hebrew sometime? They got some dots and squiggles and little tiny little marks. Make the difference between a, a hey and a chaith and some of the letters that look almost identical. This is one little mark makes a difference. And we pay attention to that. We study to show ourselves approved. We pay attention to the details. 
Matthew 24, 35. And so now the state of California is trying to outlaw the Bible. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All right? Technically, they're not banning the Bible, but they, ought, they do have a law that, that is currently working its way through describing any printed literature that's critical of homosexuality, any printed literature that criticizes homosexuality is, is illegal. It's hate speech and it's banned. And, uh, well, I've got a Bible. I can show you lots of verses that, uh, that have critical commentary related to um, not just homosexuality, but all kinds of sexual perversions. In any event, are we, uh, we're a long ways away from the death penalty for adultery. Have you noticed that? And uh, for adultery, for homosexuality, for rape, they were all punishable by death. But good luck getting a politician to vote for that these days. <laughs> yeah, we, we want death penalty for... for uh, and you know, that cut down the divorce rate. I mean, there's very little, <laughs> you know. You don't have divorce because you have the death penalty for the adulterer. I'm just saying. All right. The Word of God abides forever. The Word of God abides forever. Amen. Okay? And it's not just alive. Not just kind of lingering and holding on and, you know, not really very active anymore and not really very sharp. And I mean, okay, technically they're still alive. The Word of God is never, ever, ever on a, you know, a life support vegetable existence. It is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, always has been, always will be. And we should thank God for that. Now what is this two-edged sword? Hmm. Um, I believe it's a sword. It's used as a sword mostly, but it can also be used as a scalpel. Um, and if you have reason to believe that the author of your text was a doctor then you might have reason to perhaps take this term as not necessarily as a sword, but you might take it as, or if you think that the author of this text was a priest, then you might be tempted to consider this as a priest's uh, knife, a butcher knife, something that was used for animal sacrifices, something that was used to slaughter a sacrificial sheep. And uh, that the makarios uh, does not have to be a, a soldier's weapon on the battlefield. It could be a much smaller knife that was used in medical or priestly or other applications. But in any event, the diastamon is a two-mouth, uh, a two-edge um, sword or two-edge blade of whatever sort of a makarios. And as we, sta- uh, we had in the Armor of God passage, uh, that's Ephesians chapter 6. All right, we had a good class in this. Uh, Wes taught the armor of God, and if you missed that, I tell you, if you don't come at 6 o'clock and hear these, uh, hear these uh, student teachers, I tell you, good stuff on the armor of God from Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, this is the one that's offensive. The other armor pieces are, are uh, defensive in nature in terms of a breastplate or a helmet, uh, shield, and so forth. Uh, the belt, of course, is a truth that everything hangs on. Everything hangs on truth. 
Um, but then in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, and then verse, uh, where's the sword? There it is, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the, and it's not logos there, by the way, which is the rhema to theu. Okay? And because it's not logos, that, that opens the door for discussion in uh, Hebrews 4.12. I think uh, if it was logos to theu, then we might be, you know, more locked in to the Makaira uh, uh, in Hebrews 4.12 with the living and abiding Word of God, the, the sharper than any two-edged sword. But here in, uh, in, uh, in Ephesians, it's not logos, it's rhema. Okay? R-H-E-M-A, rhema. And uh, what's the difference between logos and rhema? Well, logos is word in general. Logos is overall word. Logos is, is if you think about the, the Word of God as a comprehensive unit or a thing, but rhema speaks of an individual focused passage, speaks of an individual focused statement. And so uh, if, uh, if you're tempted in something like, uh, oh, I don't know, a hunger test is the devil gave, gave the Lord, then he quoted a verse about food. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so that was a verse that specifically targeted or addressed the temptation that makes sense? So it's not just a generalized, uh, you know, it's not just a broad, generalized understanding of doctrine, right? But it's a very specific thing. If, uh, if you're looking at the cookie jar and mom said no cookies before dinner, and okay, so you might have a verse, you know, of uh, honor your father and mother. Might be a rhema that you would just bring to application. That's the rhema that you'd bring to application. Uh, other other words, they're, they're just as valid, they're just as much Bible verses. Maybe thou shall not steal. Okay, that might be another one. Uh, but then there's others that just aren't applicable at all. Jesus wept. Okay? Jesus wept is a fine Bible verse, but it's not a rhema to that you're going to use if you're struggling with the, the cookie-stealing temptation before dinner. Right? So you want to be targeted. That's why you want a breadth of Scripture to memorize. That's why you want to have a, a broad understanding of a variety of applications so that you have a focus on things uh, pertaining to... And, 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 and don't lie to yourself. You know what your sin temptations are. So get the verses that address those sin temptations. If you think that if you're totally oblivious to what your sin struggles are, um, you know, ask somebody. They'll tell you. <laughs> ask, ask your pastor. Ask your wife. Ask, ask you know, a friend. Someone will, will give you some recommended verses that might help to address some struggles that, uh, that you may have. So, uh, nevertheless, um, in Hebrews 4.12, is it really a sword? Is it a battlefield thing that we're talking about? Because so, I get that. On the battlefield, what do you do with a sword? You, 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 yeah, you penetrate, you puncture the enemy, Right? Pointy end goes in the other man. That's the, that's the sword lessons from that movie. Okay? But is that what Hebrews 4 is talking about? Is Hebrews 4 talking about killing an opponent? Or is, is it a beneficial puncturing? Is it actually a puncturing that's bringing to light something that has to be observed? Is it a beneficial incision whereby... It gets deep enough to lay something bare and, dare I say, remove it out of there because it's harmful as long as it sits in there. 
seems to me, when I'm looking at Hebrews 4, as the Word of God, let's, let's look at the rest of this, and then we'll see the, um, the other uses of Machaira and consider whether the scalpel is, is probably a better term. <clears throat> Some scholars mock it, or they say, well, scalpel in secular literature, in secular Greek, when Galen and, and Hippocrates and those doctors are using, they will often use the diminutive form. So instead of makairon, they'll use makarion and, and make a diminutive out of it. True, that tends to be the that tends to be the usage, but not always. Not always. The makairon itself is used as a surgeon's knife, as a surgeon's scalpel. In secular Greek. All right. Um, but here in Hebrews four, so the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the as far as the division of soul and spirit. Why is it got to go that deep? And uh, of both joints and marrow. So there's a spiritual dynamic, a physical dynamic. And able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So once it gets there, it's, it's got a criteria that it's exposing. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. It's looking at what it's cutting. I think typically a soldier on the battlefield stabs what he stabs and then puts the opponent down and he never takes the time to go back and really, you know, have a good inspection on the, until the battle's over, you know, then you, you plunder for loot. But, you know, but the idea is that the blade here is piercing and exposing. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so you want it to be laid bare. If you're having open heart surgery, you want that surgeon to have it wide open and looking and seeing, seeing what he's looking at. And that's what the Word of God does. And so I don't know that, uh, I don't think scalpel is a, is a bad translation at all. In fact, I find it preferable for many reasons. As uh, we, we cut the patient open and we see what, uh, what needs to be dealt with there. We also don't want to get lost in the metaphor because the Bible uses metaphors, including the metaphor of a hammer. Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. the Word of God is a hammer. It's also a fire. You remember this? Jeremiah wasn't that long ago, was it? Jeremiah twenty three twenty nine. We taught Isaiah and then Jeremiah right before Hebrews, so it wasn't that long ago. And so sometimes, and, and, and the metaphors are appropriate for different reasons, because sometimes the Word of God acts like a hammer that beats you up over the head. And other times, other messages, the Word of God is like a sword or like a scalpel and it pierces deep. And sometimes the doctor needs to do that. The Word of God needs to smash you upside the head, in which case the hammer metaphor is useful. But sometimes it needs to cut deep in which case the sword met- metaphor is useful. So don't get lost in the metaphor. Just appreciate every one that there is. And understand that on occasion it'll be hammer-like and on occasion it'll be sword-like or knife-like. Uh, 23.29 Verse 28, The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my word speak my word in truth. What does straw have in common with grain, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? So he goes on then to rebuke the false prophets who are just making up their own messages and uh, daring to say, thus saith the Lord. 
The Septuagint provides excellent parallels for the Makaira knife. You know when Abraham went up on the mountain to sacrifice Isaac? When we look at Jeremiah, Genesis 22, join me there, Genesis 22. Do we know this story also? Hope so. It's good to know the Bible stories. Then you have an illustration for the doctrine. In the Septuagint Greek translation of this Hebrew chapter, the, uh, the same Machiron that we have in Hebrews 4.12 was used here. I love this chapter. This is such a picture. Our father was willing to sacrifice his son. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, he says, take now your son, your only son. He had other sons, but there was no monogenes, uniquely born, miraculous son as Isaac. Isaac was the monogenes, one of a kind. Take now your one of a kind son, whom you love. Behold, my beloved son, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Ends up being years later the Temple Mount. Okay? And so Abraham takes Isaac over there. He rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering, rose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, why is that significant? (laughs) On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship. We will return. Isn't that beautiful? So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He has to carry his own wood. How about that? Jesus had to carry his own cross. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, the makaira. Now, I guess we could render it sword. He took in his hand the fire and the sword. But the Hebrew word doesn't really lend itself to sword as it does to knife. And uh, when it was translated into the Septuagint Greek, it used makairon. It used the same Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged knife, sacrificial knife, or priestly knife. So the two of them walked on together. And of course, Abraham or Isaac said, uh, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Reasonable question. (laughs) And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Again, there's a verse you can read two ways. God will himself provide or God will provide himself the lamb. How powerful is that? Because he, God himself, the lamb. Anyway, um, so they walked on together. And then we know, here's the thing, God will provide. And um, he straps Isaac down and uh, takes the makaira. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the makaira, the knife, to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him and said, Abraham, Abraham, and stopped him right there. He was willing to do it, but didn't have to do it. Why? Because a substitute was provided. And so Abraham looked and, wow, why didn't I see that before? (laughs) There's a ram stuck right here. 
Behold, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Some people think that was a Christophany of Jesus Christ. That uh, not only was he the burning bush, but he was also the ram in the thicket. In any event, the ram took his place. And so Abraham calls the place the Lord will provide. So he is spared. He, 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 he's willing to sacrifice Isaac, but he doesn't have to because a substitute was provided in his place. Now with the father and with the son, God the father was willing to sacrifice his son and there was no other substitute. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will but thine be done. And there was no ram in the thicket. There was no alternative there was no, uh, there was no uh, plan B. Either Jesus obeys the Father and, and redeems humanity, or He doesn't say. And so that's, uh, that's powerful. We also have uh, Joshua 5, the knife of circumcision is a machaira. And that one gets even more amusing if you think it's a two-edged sword. Joshua yeah. So in Joshua 5, verse 2 says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint. And that refers to the material, stone, flint, makaira, knives, and circumcise again the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made himself flint, makaira, flint knives, and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. All right, so... If you're going to be goofy about it and insist that a Makaira every single time has to be uh, a soldier's two-edged sword that he uses on the battlefield, well then uh, you've got some highly, some precision swordsmanship on, <laughs> on, this, uh, on this national circumcision here. That's, uh, that's impressive. All right. There, uh, there's a marvelous uh, theological dictionary um, there's a marvelous uh, article there by Kittle. If you ever read the Kittle Dictionary, uh, I'm not sure. I meant to preload that, uh, how long that'll take to load up. Also, uh, a secular Greek article by Xenophon, which is uh, curious too. He actually preferred the... Uh, yeah, here's this one. And that's probably way too long to read this morning. But if you would like a copy of this, shoot me an email, all right? I'll PDF it. I'll send it to you. You can read through this. Uh, this is uh, Kittle's uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament with um, aspects here. And as you work your way through, of course, there's the Hebrew equivalent of both sword and knife. And then um, the use be with Jesus and the disciples. And uh, the discussion as it relates to um, the debate with respect to the surgeon uh, weapon. Hebrews 4.12 uses makaira in much the same way, though the orientation is different. The Logos to Thetu is not called a makaira directly, but we read that it is tom uteros, that is sharper than any makairos diastamon. And this is kind of fun too, in fact Tom will like this, because tom is used twice in this passage. The, the adjective for sharper and then the uh, adjective for two-edged is a two-mouthed is a two, is a twin edge. A twin, Thomas means twin, right? And so the Tom, the die Tom, die Stamos, the two mouth. Anyway, it's, uh, there's a play on words there, but the Tom Odoros, 
comes with that as well. Uh, the choice of Machaira distinguishes this verse from Revelation 1, Revelation 2, Revelation 19, where Ramphai is used. Now, Ramphai, no question, is a sword. It is a long pointed sword that it was used uh, on the battlefield. But Machaira could be a combat weapon or it could be a surgical weapon. It could be a tool. It could be a priestly knife for sacrifices. Um, so whether or not we have a Ramphai or a Machaira here is why they're, why they're debating this. Uh, the image is also different. The sword is not used to punish and destroy, but pitilessly to disclose the secret thoughts of the heart of man. That's the, the, the context for Hebrews 4. To, and I'll say this again, pitilessly disclose the secret thoughts of the hearts of men. Pitilessly. Isn't that great? You know, if, if the pastor's preaching and, and the Word of God is piercing and, and the pastor may be completely ignorant, completely oblivious, it's like a sanctified ignorance. He doesn't know what's going on. Why are you squirming so much? But the Word of God is piercing and is convicting to the very heart issues, the things that you've never told your pastor, the things you've never told you know, another human being. And the Word of God is cutting right there, getting right where it needs to be. And it's clipping exactly what it needs to clip. It's never clipping the wrong thing. Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, let me finish this. And then, well, the clipping, let me finish this. So the sword is not used to punish and destroy. If it was a battlefield weapon, then there you go. Just kill the enemy and move on. But to, to lay these things bare, to display them, to judge between them, to, uh, to cut out the bad tissue and keep the good tissue, for example, as a surgeon might do. Um, pitifully disclosing the thoughts of the heart of man. Hence, Machaira is not a sword. To cut the joints and marrow, one does not use a sword. In fact, sometimes your sword can get caught in a, in a joint, get caught in a bone, get caught, and uh, soldiers are trying to get their sword back or they drop it and grab another sword. The picture is that of a knife used by the priest or the butcher or perhaps even the surgeon. And uh, the footnotes here, Michaelis is the author and he was a proponent of the scalpel view. And uh, there's other... Uh, ordinary knives are not usually two-edged, you can read some of these articles as well. Uh, the Septuagint has distamos or distamos. And uh, in Judges 3, Proverbs 5 with Machaira and Psalm 149, uh, surgeon's knives might be two-edged and Sudhoff speaks of that. Anyway, that's the debate. Other medical terminology. In the Epidauros inscription... Uh, the person healed tells how during incubation he had the experience of the god cutting his breast open with a machaira. Machairion is often used for the surgeon's knife. That's the diminutive form that's found in Aristotle and Plutarch. But uh, it doesn't have to be the diminutive form. It can be the, the form that we have in Hebrews 4. So Anyway, I thought that was interesting. If you want more, like I say, shoot me an email and I'll make that a PDF and, and send that to you. But the, the fact is the Word of God pierces, the word, God, word of God cuts, and it cuts what it needs to cut. It gets to what it needs to get. And, uh, and it, never, it never messes up. It's never wrong on the, on the thing there in the, in the application. What I was going to tell you earlier, I didn't want to get distracted, the, um, ever have a biopsy? I had a kidney biopsy years ago. 
And, and I was awake for this thing. And, and laying there on the table, and they, they have a, a local thing. And the surgeon's going in with this thing to snip a piece of my kidney. And the point was, they had to get a little piece of kidney out of there so they could put it, do the, the biopsy with it and find out what was happening with my kidneys. And so, and so I'm awake for this process. And laying there, and he's, he's clipping it, and, and I can feel it. He makes a snip, and I felt it. He goes, oh, you felt that? I say, yeah, I felt that. And then he had a partner with him, teaching somebody, I don't know, an apprentice or whatever. And, and so there were two people in there, and they pull out this little piece, and they put it on this little tray, and then the doctor says, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't want to hear uh-oh. I don't want to hear that. And, and, uh, and so they're talking with each other, right? Like I'm not even in the room. They're talking to each other. I said, I don't think that's what we want. <laughs> well, what is it then? Well, I said, I don't think that's kidney. I think that's fat. <laughs> Wait a minute. Who are you calling fat? <laughs> I, was, I was much younger then. And so... They, they went back for a second time, went back for a third time, and then they were really, really happy with the third one that they took. And I was happy too. I would get this thing done with. So anyway, they got that third piece out. And I think about that. So here's, here's, the, here's the Word of God. And if it wants to cut out kidney, it'll cut out kidney. If it wants to cut out fat, it'll cut out fat. It's not going to make a mistake in what it's doing. Because Jesus knows what He's doing. That's the best part as it relates to that. All right. Also, Xenophon, if you ever read Xenophon, he had an interesting commentary. Did I click that too? I did. Here we go. That's kind of fun also. So this one, yeah. So it's not only, um, yeah, it's not only Bible verses where you can look at the English and the Greek in parallel. You can also look at your secular Greek, your your classical Greek authors and so forth. And so um, in talking about the different swords, he likes the, um, what verse am I looking for here? Here we go. Yeah, that's the conclusion in verse 14. This is Xenophon on the horse, if you want to read his article on the horse, and, and talking about different ways to fight from horseback and different ways to fight. And of course the Greeks were all concerned about the Persians that are coming in and different things. And uh, why you want different weapons against different opponents. And he talks about uh, how you can have one to throw and one to use. And um, we recommend throwing the javelin at the longest range possible. This gives a man more time to turn his horse and grasp the other javelin. We will also state in a few words the most effective way of throwing the javelin. If a man in the act of advancing his left side, drawing back his right and rising from his thighs. You see, you get extra credit this morning. This is all no charge. The best way to throw the javelin. Uh, drawing back to his right, rising from his thighs, discharges the javelin with its point a little upwards. He will give his weapon the strongest impotence and the furthest carrying power. It will be most likely to hit the mark. However, if at the moment of discharge, the point is always set on it. So there you have the commentary on that. He concludes, These notes, instructions, and exercises which we have here set down are intended only for the private person. That is the idiotes, the idiot, okay? the private person. It's a term that we look at with our seminary, the idiotes that we are training to be pastors. 
Uh, what it belongs to the cavalry leader to know and to do has been set forth in another book. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. Um, the actual verse that has the Machairas is up here in verse 11. For harming the enemy, we recommend, it's translated the saber, we recommend the saber, uh, but it's actually the Machairas, which you see on the right-hand panel there, rather than the Ramphaya. The Persians would use one, and he's telling the Greeks, no, let's use this one instead. Because owing to his lofty position, the rider will find the cut with the Persian saber more efficacious than the thrust with the Ramphaya. So that's why he recommended that. All right. I enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting, and I bored you to tears, so I apologize. In any event, is this a sword or is this a scalpel? Whatever, okay? Don't even translate it. Just leave it Makara and be happy, okay? The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any sharp thing you could point a stick at, okay? It is, it is sharp, and it will cut, and it will pierce, and it's going to get to where it needs to go. And when it gets there, it's going to, uh, to judge. You see, we are accountable. And uh, next week, we're going to talk about verse 13, and we will wrap this up this chapter. Um, or we'll get ready, not wrap up the chapter, but we'll get ready for 14 through 16. But verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that is such an awkward translation. But it opens with halagos, it ends with halagos. It opens with the word, it ends with the word. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must give a word. We are accountable. You don't answer to your pastor, you answer to Jesus Christ. We are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are going to give him a word. We have to give an account. We have to give a report. And uh, if you had to stand before him today and give a report on your Christian walk, what kind of report would you give? Okay? And if it's not the report that you want to give someday, then uh, start working on it now. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the application that happens here. Okay? So we'll deal with that. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the Word of God. And Father, it's, uh, I'm, I'm so gracious. I'm so thankful, grateful, Father, for what you've provided with a, a flock of, of brothers and sisters that are hungry for the Word. And uh, not a, not a congregation where it's about the, the music or the entertainment or the programs. It's about the Word. And the Word of God is not an afterthought. It's not an accessory. The Word of God is the main dish. It's the main course that's served up here. Other things are side dishes. Just as uh, the belt of truth, Father, everything hangs on the belt of truth. If you don't start with the belt of truth, then your, uh, your breastplate has nothing to hang on to. Your your uh, sword has nothing to hang on to. The, you've got to have that belt of truth. And Father, the Word of God has to have center stage in any local church. Or that local church is, is not uh, doing what it's supposed to do. We are the pillar and support of the truth. Then everything else can come along and be icing on the cake, Father. It can, be, it can be just marvelous as long as it conforms to truth. So Father, I thank you for this, uh, this uh, doctrine. I pray that we would understand it. I pray that we would live it out. We would recognize that when it cuts deep, it's supposed to cut deep. And when it lays all things bare, that not only are you looking at it, Father, but we ourselves have the chance to look at it 
and quit lying to ourselves and quit pretending it's not there. When, uh, when the Word of God lays it bare and shows it to us and everybody, let's pay attention to it, Father, so we can uh, make the application and move on. Thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.